News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 12th. It's show number 33 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great show for you. Of course, we'll talk with Todd Zola, our Talk with Todd commentator, about why he's not a better daily game player, and more. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Chris Heston, the return of Anthony Rendon, and more. And from the American League with Alex Becky, pinch hitting for Jock Thompson, and looking at Dellen Betances, Trevor May, and other American League players. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Milwaukee right-hander Jimmy Nelson, hosting Washington righty Jordan Zimmerman. Atlanta righty Mike Fultonevich visits Mets righty Noah Syndergaard, and more matchups. And in Masternotes, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy talks about stay patient, cano. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've had the season's first no-hitter. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports... Alex Becky is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Uh, before we start our regular weekly National League discussion, Nick, uh, we saw Alex Bregman from LSU go second overall in the uh, baseball draft the other day. I know you live down that way, and you've seen Alex Bregman play. What's your scouting report? Well, I'll tell you, Alex Bregman is a... Is a uh... Uh, a marvelous baseball player. What impresses you so much about Bregman when you watch him play is his baseball instincts. When he gets a ball hit to him at shortstop, he knows what to do with it. He knows where he's going with it. Uh, plays are made almost instinctively uh, without him having to stop and think, where am I going to throw the ball? What do I do next? And uh, it's the same way when he's at bat. He makes adjustments. Uh, this is a guy that I think the scout said has a very, um, a very high floor. There are guys with better ceilings perhaps out there, but Bregman is a guy who's going to succeed in one way or another. A wonderful work ethic. Uh, I, I think it'll be, he'll be an exciting ball player as he works his way into, uh, into the pro ranks. One of the questions that surrounds a lot of shortstops coming out of more out, more out of high school, but also out of college, is whether they have the body type to stay at shortstop. You know, a lot of guys come out of uh, come out of school and they're you know long and lanky, but as they fill out, they get to be too hefty, for want of a better term, to field uh, the shortstop position adequately, and they get moved to the outfield or third base. How does Alex Bregman look in that regard? I, I think the, the scouts have, have said they think Bregman can stay at shortstop long term. If he moves, it's more likely to be to second base, I think, than uh, than into the outfield. Uh, but but most of the scouts seem to believe that he is a true shortstop and will remain there. If so, of course, he has a lot of fantasy value as well as a lot of team value. Uh, one other connection young Alex Bregman has to fantasy baseball, of course, uh, Nick, is that his uncle is the fine fantasy player and uh, author Larry Schechter. So, Good for, good for Larry, good for Alex Bregman, and good for baseball. Uh, speaking of good for baseball, Nick, we had a no-hitter the other night, and if we have, coming into the season, had to guess who might pitch a no-hitter for the Giants, we might have said Madison Bumgarner, maybe even Tim Lincecum. He has a couple on his record. 
I don't think anybody would have picked rookie right-hander Chris Heston. No, I don't think so either. I mean, Chris Heston with a no-hitter, and it was a, it was a real gem the other night. And, you know, if you look at what Chris Heston's been doing this season, Chris Heston has been uh, kind of up and down. If, if you look at his PQS scores so far, we're at a 58% dom, a 25% dis, and Heston's PQS. So it's it's kind of an on and off, do you, is he going to do it well, is he not going to do it well this week sort of thing with Heston. Overall, the results are pretty good. I have a 3.77 ERA, a 3.11 XERA, 119 BPV. You certainly can't sneeze at those results. But, uh, you know, Stephen Nick Rand in a column this week looking at left-right left, spritz may have hit on the uh, on the, the reason for the inconsistency at this point. Heston has been extremely overpowering against right-handed hitters. 2.84 ERA, uh, 152 BPV. Uh, on the other hand, left-handed hitters, 4.7 DOM, dropped down from 9.7 against right-handers. Uh, a minus 19 BPV against lefties. So... My guess is if we went back and analyzed those bad PQS starts, might have been lefty loaded lineups. And so Heston is, uh, certainly has the goods to be a good pitcher, but, uh, managers are going to catch on pretty soon that he can't handle lefties and begin loading up against him. Presuming that they have lefties that they can load up with. Some teams are just right-handed heavy, and there's not a lot they can do about it. Uh, Heston also has a 119 whip, uh, a partly a result of a pretty nice control ratio of 2.2 walks per nine innings, and that at least has to be some comfort to anybody who's on the fence about uh, Chris Heston. He gets the ball over the plate, and he has a decent strikeout ratio at about eight per nine innings. Eight strikeouts per nine is, it's not elite, but it's not Unacceptable. Right, and he gets ground balls even against even against uh, left-handers. He's getting a fifty-one percent ground ball rate. That rises to fifty-seven percent against right-handers. So uh, he's getting the ball hit on the ground, and certainly that helps. Very low fly ball rate to go along with that, just 23% uh, actual to date. And as a result, only seven-tenths of a home run per nine innings, which is excellent and which is, should really help his strand rate, which is right around league normal at 70%. So there may be a little bit of upside here, especially as Heston learns how to pitch and, as you said, maybe learns how to manage those uh, left-handed bats. So we're projecting Heston to be worth about $10 the rest of the way. He's been worth 14 so far. We're looking for six wins, a 321 ERA, 120 whip. Just 57 strikeouts in his next 80-plus innings or so. Nick, uh, moving on, something it seems we're always watching for is a closer in waiting, especially in a volatile bullpen. Now, the Marlins' A.J. Ramos has been struggling of late to be charitable, and he gave up a walk-off homer against Toronto a few nights ago. Now people are looking at Carter Capps, including Greg Pyron in his Playing Time Tomorrow column. What's the scoop on Carter Capps of the Marlins? Well, certainly Carter Capps has been dynamite in his first uh, his first few innings this year. Nine games, 12 innings pitched, 1.50 ERA, 21 strikeouts and only three walks. So Carter Capps is pitching very well in that bullpen. And if he can keep that up, could work himself into a position where he's uh, where he could, in fact, be a closer in waiting or the closer if Ramos continues to struggle. So, it, you know, it's, it's a point in the season when a lot of these um, – uh, a lot of these high strikeout, uh, strong bullpen arms have gotten snatched up by fantasy teams, and Carter Capps may still be out there in some leagues, so certainly a guy worth looking at. Now, the one caution, I think, about that 16 strikeouts per nine dom rate, it's up very substantially from the last three seasons, which were all around 10 or 11, so... Anytime you see a big jump like that, you have to ask yourself, is there some reason for it? And get into the finding out as he changed his pitch mix and so forth. Also, the other caveat about uh, Carter Capps is he had an elbow strain last year. He avoided Tommy John surgery, but when you hear the words, 
he avoided Tommy John surgery, it usually means he postponed Tommy John surgery. Right, very definitely. So there's certainly an injury history there that you need to worry about with cargo caps. Uh, this is a guy who throws very hard, 97.7 miles per hour is his, is his velocity. Uh, and certainly uh, you, you worry about that with a guy that's uh, had elbow problems. BaseballHQ.com is not projecting Carter Caps to take over the closer role, but to be fair, I don't think we make that call until after the team makes it because it would be speculative. Otherwise, right now, we're still looking for decent decimals, 321-121, with 34 strikeouts in 28 innings to come, three or four bucks, of course, with that potential upside for saves. Uh, in Washington, Nick, uh, the infielder Anthony Rendon has finally been activated from the DL. Greg Pyron covered this story in playing time tomorrow as well. How are the dominoes going to fall now that uh, Anthony Rendon's back in the lineup in Washington? Well, you know, he's going to be back in the lineup and probably moved around between second and third base, depending upon where they need him. And certainly a lot of owners, I think, were probably breathing a great sigh of relief to have him back in the lineup uh, after that uh, the long injury to start the season. But he hasn't started off very well. He's obviously very, very rusty. Four hits and 24 at-bats, a 167 batting average. He's not hitting the ball very hard. Uh, PX of 41 in those those initial at-bats. So Anthony Rendon is going to be just fine. He's shown us that in the past. This is an elite ball player. But he's starting off with a lot of rust on his wheels and starting off very slowly. Uh, if I were in a league, I, it might be a good time to approach an owner and see if you can pry him away for a, uh, for a, a little or nothing at this point before he, he catches fire and does what we expect him to do the rest of the way. This situation, Nick, puts me in mind of something that we talk about usually before the season when we're discussing draft strategy, and it's this. Sometimes it's a pretty smart play, if you can get the guy at a decent price, to draft a guy like Anthony Rendon early, even though you know he's going to miss a substantial part of the season, because you may be able to get him at a discount price that allows you to make hay out of it in this sense. So in, you draft Rendon, you reserve him right away, then you pick up some drag guy to, f to fill that roster slot temporarily, and you get some small value from the replacement level guy. And then partway through the season, you know you're going to get your Anthony Rendon back on your roster, and at that point it's like a free fab pickup of a premium free agent. Right. A very very definitely, I think, a good way to play play these kind of situations, certainly. Of course, the risk is that uh, he doesn't come back. There's, you know, something goes from bad to worse in the injury situation and you never see him. And that happens too. Uh, right now, baseballhq.com projecting Anthony Rendon to get full time at bats. We expect about a $20 performance the rest of the way, close to 10 home runs, 10 steals, 50 runs, 40 RBIs, and a 281 batting average that will help most teams. Uh, and finally, Nick, in the facts and fluke spotlight, Stephen Nickrand looked at Dodgers catcher Yasmani Grandal. And Nick, these spotlight pieces really go in depth. I had one recently on Cole Calhoun, and it's the whole point of it is to really dig into the player's uh, skills and background. What did Stephen uh, unearth about Yasmani Grandal? Yeah, let me let me back up what you just said. I really like these spotlight pieces because they do go in depth. They give you a real idea of what what may be happening or be going to happen with a uh, with a player that. Uh, and so, uh, definitely love the fact fluke spotlight pieces. If if you're not familiar with them, I would get familiar with those very quickly because they certainly tell you a lot uh, about these ball players. And what we see with uh, with uh, Yasmani Grandal is that here's a guy that has a lot of a lot of upside. Has some some uh, things to work out still in his uh, in, in his overall profile. Uh, has some weaknesses. He struggles against left-handed pitchers. Uh, he needs to get a little more uppercut in his swing so he can take advantage more of his power. But he's he, he's clearly beginning to recognize pitches better. He's making contact at strikes 
Uh, he's making some solid contact against left-handed pitchers more than he was before. He's hitting the balls further than he did in the past. Uh, so that uh, here's a guy that really could, even in the second half of this year, or certainly next season, begin to deliver on some excellent power potential. And of course, we, we talk a lot about the, uh, the fact that catchers are a little later in maturing in their offensive game because of the defensive burdens of playing the position. Now, Nick, uh, something that does concern me, this last trip to the DL, it wasn't a regular DL stint. It was a seven day concussion DL stint. And I always get a little concerned about catchers who get concussions because there's so much physical activity back there. Not so much with guys banging into you anymore because of that rule change, but just taking foul tips off the mask. That's a jarring experience, I know. Yeah, it is indeed. And so, you know, you've got to watch it. Anytime a guy has a concussion, I think it's something to worry about. It, it uh, Hopefully it's something that doesn't last and that uh, the guy is back right away but go back to the case of Justin Morneau who yes. took almost two years to come back from getting beaned before he began to, to produce the kind of um, the, the kind of, of uh, numbers that we know he was capable of producing so concussions can be long lasting in their effects and of course Morneau has returned to the DL since that time with concussions or concussion related effects they call them and uh, just a, a a word about Justin Morneau. Again, he's a Canadian guy, relatively famous up here north of the border. And uh, not many uh, baseball fans may be aware of this, but he was a goaltender in hockey for many years a, a very at a very high level. He played on traveling teams, as you guys call them in the States, and played as a youth hockey player in the Nets and uh, was also a catcher in minor baseball. He actually caught Jeff Francis on a Little League team or some kind of youth team. And uh, there's some suspicion that he took a couple of shots off the noggin in those early leagues when he was a child, which, of course, makes you very susceptible down the road. It does indeed. I mean, you know, you've got to, uh, as you, as concussions tend to build up, uh, we're starting, I think, to watch them more in young athletes and begin to, to avoid situations where a young athlete will have uh, one concussion after another. But certainly uh, multiple concussions can have serious effects down the road. And the uh, football-related research suggests that there's also a cumulative effect from what they call subconcussive events. So all of that, uh, in f in football terms, when they're banging heads in the in the line play, and uh, you know when they're getting around to make the tackle, you hit a guy with your head. You don't get a concussion, but you do get a blow to your brain, and those accumulate over time as well. And I'm thinking of all the times that catchers, in particular, take those foul balls that that hit them square in the mask and jar them backwards. They don't show signs of concussion right away, but the evidence suggests that if you have enough of them, they start to have an effect. Right, very definitely. Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League again. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup analysis for BaseballHQ.com, and of course, he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League, and since Jock Thompson is in Cabo swilling tequila and contemplating the ocean vistas, we're lucky to have a pinch hitter and stepping to the plate Baseball HQ analyst and writer, Alex Becky. Alex, welcome to the show, and thanks for helping out. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. I know Jack's a big Angels fan, and I feel like I'm stepping in for Mike Trout, so... It's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, you know, it, they're big shoes to fill. I don't know if they're quite that big, but it's nice of you to say that about Jock. He does a terrific job as well. Uh, starting off, uh, Alex, in the American League, some late news coming out of the Yankees with closer Andrew Miller. He's going to the disabled list with the dreaded forearm tightness, forearm strain. 
A lot of times that means uh, Tommy John is on the way. Dellen Batances, who was thought of as the closer coming into the year, takes over in the ninth as closer. And this is all fine. I don't think anybody's worried about Dellen Batances. But, geez, it seems to leave the Yankees a little short of late-inning right-handed relief. So once Dellen Batances moves up into the closer role, what else happens in this bullpen? There may be some experimentation on Girardi's part, but Chris Martin may be one of the best options. And he has a 3.55 ERA and a 1.18 WHIP right now, but he does. Uh, he's a pretty good ground ball pitcher, so I think he may be really effective in that role. And of course, uh, most of the rest of the bullpen is left-handed, so they're going to have some options there as well. I think that I think the Yankees bullpen will pull through. Plus, uh, you have to look at as Miller's only going to be out a couple weeks, maybe up to a month, hopefully. So once they get that back, the bullpen will be the strength for that team again. Which left-hander should we be looking at? They do have uh, Jacob Lindgren. He's another possibility. Um, he's got a 4.26 ERA. Uh, but in terms of fill-in, I mean, it, you know, inning by inning, he may be able to improve on that. Yeah, the left-handers that were raised by Matt Dodge at playing time today included uh, Shreve, Chasen Shreve, his name is, and Jacob Lindring, Lindgren. They both have uh, fairly decent results, especially but recently. And uh, of the two, I think Matt Dodge liked to chase and shreve maybe a little better than lindgren because uh, lindgren has some walks issues so it'll certainly be a situation to watch but of course the play here is Dellen batances as the closer uh, alex you mentioned uh, jock thompson's southern california coverage i know you live up in the minneapolis st paul area so i'm guessing you're enjoying the surprising performance of the twins so far through the first third of the season how do you like their chances of staying in that tough uh, american league central division i think it really comes down to pitching i mean last year they were the only team in the American League or Major League Baseball with an ERA above five among starters. And this year, their uh, starting rotation has an ERA of 3.88. So they've drastically improved that. I think it really comes down to pitching, especially when you see some of the other teams in the league. Cleveland has a strong rotation. Uh, of course, uh, the White Sox have Chris Sale. So I think if they can continue to improve on that, I think we may see something special out of them. How likely are they be, to be able to improve on um, what they've been doing, considering they've already improved on what they were doing? I think that uh, they have a lot of young talent coming through the system, as we know. We've seen they've been drafting a couple flamethrowers and trading for a couple. Alex Myers, one coming up. We should see Berrios this year. And plus, Irvin Santana's coming back after his suspension. What about the recall of uh, Kenneth Vargas? He looked like a big power bat last year in the second half, but he lacked a little plate control, and that really came back to bite him. They had to demote him to the minor leagues. Now he's back up. Uh, Alex, can he stay in the big leagues? I think we have to remember, this is a guy who skipped double-A completely. Uh, this uh, first stint at triple-A this year was his very first time playing at triple-A. And last year from, I believe he was called up on July 31st, so from August 1st to the end of the season, he was tied for the fourth most RBI in, uh, in baseball behind Victor Martinez, Jose Batista, and Chris Carter. So he's pretty much an RBI machine with upper deck power. He reminds me a lot of a young David Ortiz, who is one of his uh, favorite players, by the way. His contact rate is still very low in his few games that he's played in the last week. Uh, what is it that makes you confident that Kenneth Vargas is going to turn things around and be a legitimate uh, middle-of-the-order type player? 
Well, I think a big part of it might be the mental aspect of the game. And this is important for daily fantasy owners is when he's in the lineup in the six and seven spots this year, he's uh, batting 314. But when he's in the four and five spots, he's batting 208, which is a pretty strong split. So I, I feel confident when he's hitting the ball, he's hitting it with authority. The problem is a lot of them aren't falling in yet, and I'm pretty confident that they will eventually. So I think that uh, with his level of power and with his hitting ability, and I know that in Venezuela he worked out his plate discipline. I think he walked more than anybody else in the league uh, in this winter. I think that he has a chance to hit 300 eventually as well as uh, um, has just incredible power, which should drive a lot of the other factors. Getting back to the rotation in, in Minneapolis, uh, Trevor May got off to a slow start this year, 442 uh, ERA in April, 138 whip, not good numbers. And uh, in in uh, May, it wasn't uh, a very good either, an ERA over five. But then he had that great start in Boston not long ago, nine strikeouts, no walks, a real solid PQS5. To me and to many others in this business, he looks like a back-of-the-rotation guy, probably not rosterable in mixed leagues, but there are some people who disagree. What's your take? For the most part, he may not be rosterable right now, depending on the overall makeup of your team. However, playing the matchups, there are some things that indicate that he's not doing that badly. Uh, among major league rookies, he ranks third in strikeouts behind Chris Set- Chris Heston with 66, who had a great game the other night, no hitter, and Nate Carnes with 60. So there's uh, he has 55 strikeouts this season so far, and uh, I think he's only going to improve. So he may be a buy low option, and he's a great one for uh, checking the matchups. And uh, the starting pitcher buyer's guide, Stephen Nickrand, said near elite skills. What what can that mean? Well, I think the biggest thing is he doesn't walk anybody, and uh, Steven did an excellent job of pointing that out. I mean, his walk totals are extremely low, but the thing that scares me is I did see his start at Target Field last week or a couple days ago against the Royals, and it seemed like every inning there was a batter on first and a batter on second, so... He was stranding runners pretty well, but by the same token, that could blow up pretty easily, and that's where I think the issue comes in. He didn't give up a lot of runs, but you could see if there were a couple misplays in the outfield or the infield, how that could change very, very quickly. Stephen Nickrant's column also mentioned a kind of a weird reverse split that uh, May as a right-hander has a 570 ERA versus right-handed bats and a 46% strand rate against right-handed hitters. And so Stevens' opinion was that if he can correct that particular situation, he could be a great buy-low target. And I agree with him. I think he could be an excellent buy-low target. But we have to keep in mind that he is a rookie, and by that token, he will have some bumps on the road. And it's a question of being able to predict that or look at matchups and say, uh, especially for daily fantasy players, to say, boy, tonight's a good matchup or tonight's not a good matchup, as well as on a weekly basis. If you're looking at two starts and potentially streaming them, you have to make sure that the matchups fit with his pitching style. And I think he could be very effective that way. The overall BaseballHQ.com projection for the balance of the year is not optimistic. Uh, minus $5 in 5 by 5 formats, a 439 ERA, 143 ratio. Just five wins and 71 strikeouts. Uh, some of the news this week in the American League, 
Alex seems to be about rookie call-ups. We had Joey Gallo called up by the Rangers, a very top prospect in that organization, and now their state mates in Houston have called up shortstop Carlos Correa. BaseballHQ.com covered the Correa call-up in a couple of articles. So what should we make of Carlos Correa and his chances to provide fantasy impact this year and in the long term? You know, he had a good April double-A. He had a softer May double-A, triple-A. He was batting two sixty six with three home runs and three stolen bases. That's not the best average in the, the hitter-friendly uh, Pacific Coast League. But, you know, he's going to be starting five days a week and uh, or more, five games a week or more. And uh, um, there is a possibility, though, that he could be benched against uh, really tough right-handed pitching. I think the big part of it is watching how he handles making adjustments. And if he's adjusting well, then his chances of staying in the big leagues long term, especially for this season, are excellent. But really, it, we won't know until he goes through facing pitchers a second time around uh, how well he'll make those adjustments, and that's going to be the key. Of course, for right now, as you say, he's kind of a, a mystery. He hasn't been in the big leagues long enough for us to develop any real solid expectations. But, of course, BaseballHQ.com has a, a scouting team that looks at these guys as they're progressing through their organizations, and then especially as they get called up. What does the BaseballHQ.com scouting team have to say about Correa? Well, I say it's a great package. I mean, he was the first overall pick in 2012, as you remember, and he's the youngest player for his MLB call-up. He's got a quick bat, decent pop. He doesn't have excellent speed, but he's a depth base stealer, and he's a plus defender. I mean, he has a great arm. He's a has a perfect build for a shortstop. We were talking with uh, Harold Nichols earlier about Alex Bregman, the LSU shortstop, who's the second pick overall this year. And one of the uh, things the scout said is he can maintain the shortstop position because of his body type, which is really important. And uh, it sounds like Korea has the same thing going on. So he's got all of these pluses. Does that make uh, Carlos Correa a sure thing, do you think? You know, I don't think it does. In this game, there's no real sure thing in baseball, especially for prospects. He's only 20 years old. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of experience against top-level competition. And uh, so it wouldn't be a surprise if he struggled. Uh, let's not forget that Mike Trout came up at a young age. His first season, he struggled. I think he batted maybe maybe 220 in 40 games or something like that. Right. And then when he came up at, for the full season as a rookie, he was incredible. But it, it takes a while for rookies to make adjustments. Yeah, you mentioned adjustments earlier, Alex. When you say we should be watching for the adjustments what do we watch for in particular? Well, I think one of the big things is that, you know, talking about Aaron Hicks before, he skipped double A as well, and I know Jackie Bradley did too, and they were stellar in spring training. But when they came up, uh, I know Aaron Hicks had uh, had a couple of holes in his swing, had uh, uh, trouble hitting breaking balls, and I think handling different types of pitches like that for Carlos Correa will will make all the difference because pitchers will exploit especially at this level any possible weakness they see and the more games he gets under his belt at the major league level the more scouts are going to see those weaknesses and figure out ways to bring those out every single game and every single at bat and finally uh while we're talking about carlos correa obviously you said he's going to play five or more games per week that means somebody's not going to be playing five or more games per week. Who are the playing time losers here? 
Well, I think that uh, uh, Valbuena, Luis Valbuena, could be pushed to a DH or a part-time role, and that will definitely cost Chris Carter some at-bats, and I know he's been scuffling lately. Uh, Jed Lowry could be moved to third base when he gets back from the DL. I think there's, a, I think that will have a pretty big impact. Now, of course, that depends on how often they play Correa, but I assume that he'll play every day to gain that experience. So, um, depending on how they handle right-handed pitching, may indicate which players gain or lose playing time. And what about VR and Marwin Gonzalez, who have kind of been, you know, sixty forty a share for the shortstop role so far? Well, I I think they're going to lose time for now, and as we talked about, there may be cascade effects with some of the other players, but I think they may be the uh, biggest losers in terms of playing time. Baseball HQ is projecting $18 in value from Carlos Correa in about 250 at-bats. We're looking for four homers, maybe 40-ish runs in RBIs, a 262 average, but 16 steals. You mentioned that he's, uh, despite not having great foot speed, is a really adroit uh, base stealer. Uh, in his Facts and Flukes performance validation column, Alex, analyst Dan Beck looked at Baltimore third baseman Manny Machado as an attractive asset. What is Dan's take and what do you think of Manny Machado for this year? Well, Dan really likes his power-speed combo, and I like that too. I think that's one of the things that has the potential to make him an elite player for years to come. Um, And those are all supported by the underlying numbers, as Dan pointed out. Uh, My own position is that he he does have an injury risk and so you have to be cautious with that and when you look at him overall uh, you have to keep asking yourself uh, in terms of whether he's a buy uh, um whether he's a buying or selling opportunity within your league i i like to keep asking myself is this his highest possible value and when i look at right now where he's at he's set a career high in steals uh, with eight, and he's also uh, hit safely in 34 of his last 45 games. So I tend to think that this could be a sell-high opportunity in redraft leagues. In a keeper league, he's one to hold on to. And the reason I say that he's a sell-high opportunity isn't because I don't think he has the potential to get better, because I think he does. I think he does. He's an excellent talent. But I also am very cautious about that uh, about his health, especially with some of the major surgeries he's had over the past couple of years. Baseball HQ projecting Machado for around twenty dollars balance of the season in five by five value. Fourteen homers looks nice. Uh, seven stolen bases would be nice as well. Two seventy four batting average, mid forties in the runs and RBIs. Uh, and the projection, of course, does not expect another injury, which is something that you mentioned. Uh, finally. Alex, another rookie, the Red Sox called up left-hander Eduardo Rodriguez. This is a while ago now. Mostly the Red Sox seem desperate to fill some gaping wounds in their uh, rotation. He's been a pleasant surprise so far, I have to say, for this beleaguered Red Sox pitching staff. Oh, he's been incredible. I know that we did discuss him on uh, frequent flyers uh, la- uh, last week where we compared him. There's been some comparisons to Johan Santana because he does offer that high 90s fastball that can touch 98 miles an hour, but that sets up an excellent changeup. And, you know, he also has a decent slider and breaking ball, as we mentioned. But his .44 ERA is the lowest by any Red Sox pitcher through his first three games since 1913. And this isn't a total surprise, because last year, um, 
his stats in AAA were outstanding. I mean, he had an ERA of less than one. So uh, when we look at Eduardo Rodriguez, I th- I think he's a he has a he has a possibility of some regression. Obviously, I don't think that the these stats will hold all year. But boy, if they did, that'd be really something. So uh, Matt Cedarholm was saying that his .44 ERA and .73 WHIP are the product of good luck. He has a 16% hit rate and a 100% strand rate, but he's put up very, very strong skills this year in AAA and and in the majors. So I think all of that can continue as 9.1 DOM and as a control of 3.0 and command of three. Uh, and as XERA under three, I think those are all good, all good indicators of an excellent season. And who knows? He may be, if he continues at this pace, he is a legitimate shot of being the AL rookie of the year. That's a mighty big if, though. Uh, as you said, a 0.44 ERA is, seems unsustainable to say the very least. Yes. BaseballHQ.com is projecting Eduardo Rodriguez to come down to earth with uh, something of a thud, a minus $6 value the rest of the way in 5x5, five five, two wins, 438 ERA, 143 whip, uh, hit rates and strand rates will normalize, all of that kind of stuff. So Eduardo Rodriguez is a good story, but don't jump out there and, and make a big aggressive trade thinking that you're getting you know, a, another Cole Hamels or, or Clayton Kershaw, that's for sure. Alex, uh, what do you have on the go at BaseballHQ.com coming up? For one thing, we have our next frequent flyers coming up, and I'm doing some research on a phenomenal prospect in San Francisco, so I'm excited to share that. And also, it's been really fun uh, being the coordinator for the subscriber leagues. There's a lot of tough competition in there, so I want to thank everybody who's playing this year for playing. It's been fun to see the trade offers and so forth and get to know some of our subscribers on a more personal level. Alex, thanks a million for helping us out. Sounds like you're keeping busy, and we'll uh, get you up here again every week with your frequent flyers, and uh, who knows, Jock Thompson will be off to some luxurious resort at some other point, and we'll have you back. Well, I hope he sends me a postcard, and uh, thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. Alex Beck is a writer at BaseballHQ.com and the Frequent Flyers commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio every Tuesday. When we come back, we'll have our regular weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola coming next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. So we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Aug Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Really am looking forward to hearing from you by email at bhqradio at gmail.com. 
BaseballHQ.com is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed, like these features. In our Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage, analyst Greg Pyron looks at Billy Hamilton, Jimmy Nelson, Michael Kadire, Mike Leak, and Andre Ethier. In the BaseballHQ.com series, The Eyes Have It, Chris Blessing goes on the road and out to the ballpark to scout Cubs prospects Kyle Schwarber, Albert Almora, and Billy McKinney. And I have a research article on the predictive power of pitcher hot streaks. BaseballHQ.com updates its content every day across a wide range of great information like our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessment columns, that performance validation I mentioned in Facts and Flukes, roster changes in playing time today and tomorrow, as well as daily matchups, team coverage, minor league scouting, and more. And, of course, we have those great tools like our projections and other roster management systems that you can use to help you dominate your league or daily fantasy. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and more. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be back, Patrick. And it's great to have you. Uh, Todd, you had a column this week at Fantasy Alarm, very candid admission, why you're not a better daily fantasy baseball player. So why aren't you? Why aren't I a better fantasy uh, daily fantasy baseball player? I um I gave three reasons that that my game isn't you know up to the you know the first thing being I setting my standards high. There's people out there winning, uh you know you mentioned finish alarm. The guys that finish the alarm just won a hundred thousand dollars at a Playboy Mansion uh, a week ago. So I'm I'm setting it you know comparing to the best and why I'm not uh you know up there going to all these tournaments and that sort of thing. And I think there's uh there's three reasons. Um, first of which is I'm too reliant on my own. This sounds silly, but I'm too reliant on my own work and don't do enough outsourcing other people's opinions and and, and strategies and analysis of players. I mean, I do it for a living, so I feel you know I sort of have to go with my guys. But if someone uses my stuff and then tells me. You know, I hope you don't mind, but, you know, I, I read you, but I also read this guy and that guy and, you know, this person. I'm going to, you know, congratulate them because that's what they should be doing. They should be looking at multiple sources, looking for outliers, understanding each process and making their own decision based upon the processes they they, they believe in are, are, are best, you know, evidenced and that sort of thing. But I don't do that enough in my own game. You know, I'm not the smart, you know, I, I, I can hang with these guys, but there's some pretty smart people out there too. And I think I need to do a better job of, uh, of using their knowledge to benefit me and not completely relying on myself. I think that's an interesting point to make. It also applies equally, I think, to other forms of fantasy baseball, too. I mean, you want to be able to look at a, at a variety a variety of well-researched material. And I think the key point you made there was finding the outliers. Oh, sure. And it's exactly apropos. And I'll, I'll look at things for my seasonal leagues, especially if, the, if, if in Tout Wars and, and even in the NFBC to a certain extent, because there's some uh, you know, professionals in there just to see what, where they might be going. But I don't do enough uh, challenging my own picks and, and potentially changing them 
uh, the, you know, well, this is, this is, you know, March 25th by this point. And not as if I can go out there and change and get to all my customers and say, Hey, I changed my mind on this guy. It might be unfair that in my own head, I've changed my mind, but what was out there was out there. And I, perhaps I need to do a better job earlier in the process of at least thinking about other people's processes, which I may be able to change my process a bit to, uh, to have it match better. But yeah, the other, you know, you know, process, the, another, fault i think in my game is you know very spreadsheet driven um i i think a spreadsheet for me anyway has an advantage that it doesn't forget players it doesn't leave things out it doesn't omit players that you forget about when you're trying to sort of think about uh players and how they're doing it won't forget them and it has a real advantage of not being influenced by recency bias that i think we all are um on the other hand it can't adjust to up-to-the-minute news and up-to-the-minute differences, especially in DFS with lineups and weather and stuff like that. So I think I might be too reliant on the on the number of the spreadsheet and don't think enough about the context of, you know, this is DFS. The D stands for daily. Uh, make those up-to-the-minute adjustments better than I... I don't think I'm doing them to, to the as well as I should, especially because... A lot of the people I'm playing against are using information sourced by people that are basing that information on non-up-to-the-minute data. So I'm playing against people that are, are a little bit outdated as far as their information. I can gain an edge if I use better information, and I'm not taking as well advantage of that as I should. The sites do a pretty good job of keeping weather updated. It's it's uh, fairly easy to find out whether or not you're betting into an 80% chance of rain and so forth at the websites themselves. But you had an interesting point in the column that I hadn't considered before, frankly, and that is how about a team that's on the 10th day of a 10-day road trip? You know, and and you know just from your own personal traveling experiences, your ass is dragging by that by that fourth day and, and asking a guy to hit a ninety five mile an hour fastball when he hasn't slept in his own bed for almost two weeks, that has an effect and it's something that we need to take into account and that spreadsheets so far I'm already thinking about how you can make it work, but for now your your spreadsheet driven approach can't capture that particular piece of information either. Right now, I know I don't play fantasy basketball, um, but or DFS even. But I know this is huge in in basketball. The second day of a back to back and and things like that. These are some of the you know we talk about head in the splits and such and in, in, in baseball. These are the ways to gain your edges in basketball. And I, I I have to think that there's a certain element of that in the baseball. You know that does a team you know are they flying out after the game or are they just trying to get through the game and get it over with and day game after night game and all those sorts of things. And what we're looking for is any little edge we can get. Uh, you know, I don't take that extra, you know, even if it's subjective, even if it's, if I don't right now don't have the data on the last game played at the end of a road trip for every team, I haven't mined that data yet. I don't know. I still think I could incorporate that if it's a tiebreaker into the decision, you know, especially take a look at the last couple of games. And if the guys, you know, struck out, a lot in the, the previous two games, and maybe he is getting a little tired and needs that that, that 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 travel day and then get back home to get refreshed. And and the other end of it, I think sometimes 
if a guy's been uh, hitting poorly, I'm a Red Sox fan, so I see this, and who knows, maybe it's anecdotal, maybe it's not. But at the end of a long road trip, the day the day off, the Red Sox seem to do a little bit better when they get to friendly Fenway. So, uh, you know, again, maybe it's anecdotal, and I try to be more tangibly spreadsheet, you know, objectively driven. But, you know, we're supposed to have some fun, too. So uh, this element, you know, feeds into the whole thing. And, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's other, uh, I think there is ways to, to mine the data and eventually incorporate it into the algorithms. You also mentioned in the column a need to be what you described as less cavalier about setting your lineups. What did you mean by that? Yeah, this is, uh, I almost didn't write the column or I almost didn't include this because I was afraid of some of the repercussions or misinterpretations of what I'm saying. Because this is going to sound completely wacko to some people. And other people that are gonna, you know, you know, applaud me for my candidness. But, you know, I do this for a living. I, I write about the teams, both seasonal and, and regular. I answer emails. I, I respond to Twitter. I go to forums and answer questions. It's what I, if I'm awake, I'm doing something with fantasy baseball. So sometimes the last thing I want to do is manage my own teams. You know, you, you know, I used to, used to be a, a chemist and it used to be great. A long day in the hood with all the stinky smells. It was just great to come home, kick back and take a look at my fantasy it was a release. It's not a release anymore. Uh, you know, so there are some nights where I, it's, it's a burden to actually manage my own teams and manage my own, uh, DFS teams. But yeah, you know, I have to do it. I think a little about that. Maybe I bit off more than I can chew as far as where, you know, my own, my own stuff that I'm doing. And that's, you know, a story for another day. But, you know, the the goofy and all my analogies are food and most of those are pizza. You know, a guy that's a pizza chef comes home and it's his birthday and the family wants to take him out for his, uh, you know, he, for, he wants to be taken out for a special birthday dinner. And, you know, the family says, ah, we're ordering out a pepperoni and, and cheese. That's probably <laughs> the last thing you want for dinner that night. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, it, it's sort of the, you know, it's it's wrong. You know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's candid or irresponsible. I'm not exactly sure. But I do know there are times when, I just don't feel like managing my own seasonal and DFS squads. Is that uh, exacerbated to any extent, Todd, by the fact that, uh, like many fantasy baseball experts, you have a lot of teams to manage and they keep throwing more at you? Yes, and a lot of that, yeah, I absolutely. Now, a lot of that's, you know, again, I alluded to that, but a lot of that's my own fault. And the, and the part about this I wanted to sort of, I was hoping people wouldn't read between the lines. Uh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to shirk on my work. I'm not going to skimp on my, on my job. Um, so I, I don't, I was afraid people, you know, you know, so I'm, you know, paying you to do this. I'm reading your stuff and you're telling me you're doing it, you know, halfway. No, I'm not doing my work halfway. It's my own, it's my own stuff that I seem to be doing more halfway. So that was kind of my, my concern. But yeah, even when I, every year I decide what I can do as far as manage my teams based upon my, my workload and other things going on in my life. And I had a, you know, I came up to a, what I thought was critical mass this year. But then, you know, we talk about some of the sites that I work for and I'm invited into their, their, you know, staff leagues and you can't, you can't say no. And then the Sports Writers Association, uh, asked me if I would host a league of other writers and you can't say no. So suddenly my critical mass isn't so critical anymore. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, so I do agree that the uh, the number of teams, man, and even if a lot of my stuff is the high stakes where I don't have to worry about trade offers and, and that sort of stuff, there's still you know roster moves that need to be made. Yeah, and you know I just don't want to be the person that gets called out on the forums 
for ignoring my team, you know, because I'm out of it, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be out of it in a couple of months in some leagues. And I don't want to be the guy that gets made fun of for being in the business and, you know, not trying. So it's, it, it's, it's, it's tough. And, uh, and it, it seems to the least, the more personal the league is, is the ones that I, you know, would skimp on the most. And there's nothing more personal than, you know, trying to win money with the DFS. So that seems to be the one that if anything seems to slip, that's the one that's going to slip now. Cause I'm still going to do my lineups in the NFBC and tell wars and labor and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it, the filters down and it's my DFS lineup that, you know, eh, I guess I got to put it in because I'm on record as saying that, that, you know, column A is going to do really well tonight. So if I don't use them, I'm kind of hypocritical. So I got to put them in there, but I don't do as good of a job supporting him with good hitters. I was going to say that the one advantage of daily game in so far as being an expert and doing this for a living or doing it f for a big part of your day anyway, is that on a given night, you don't have to do anything. Whereas in your seasonal league, you really do have to make your required roster moves and replace your injured guys and so forth. Uh, daily fantasy, you don't feel like it, you just say, I'll do it tomorrow. No, and, and I agree. And there are nights when I don't play and it, cause I'm, I'm I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid or whatever that expression is. There are nights where I'll, they'll just take the night off or whatever, even if it's just because uh, I just would rather do my, you know, if I don't, if I even put a lineup in or do my laundry, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather have clean clothes for the rest of the week when I'm putting my lineups in. So there are nights that I take it off, but there, again, there are, there, it depended upon what I did that day, what my responsibilities were as far as information, you know, the last thing I want to do, you know, go be a, be outspoken about a particular player and the next day being called out, hey, did you use so-and-so or whatever? And they say, I didn't use them. Well, that <laughs> I think that hurts credibility a bit too. So it, it, it's a fine line, but you're absolutely right. And, and if if ever there is a night, and act to be honest, uh, you know, last night, last Thursday night was a, was a perfect example. It was a, some games during the games during the day and then the nighttime and there was weather conditions. It was kind of a burden to, to set, to, to work to find players that were playing that you like. So if you took last night off, you know, no issues as far as DFS goes. I didn't because there was a couple of players that I, you know, again, was outspoken about. So I felt I had to use them, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's part of part and parcel to being in the business. And again, people may think it's irresponsible, that I, but it's, it is the way, it is what it is. I have a, a guy that I, I use for some plumbing work around the house. And the last time he was here, I asked him, how often do your relatives and stuff lean on you for some free plumbing work? And he says, yeah, not that often. They're kind of cool about it. He said, the worst thing is when you get people invited to people's houses. And while you're standing there, the guy says, uh, by the way, I got a dripping faucet here, you know, and, and you're supposed to be over there having a beer and, you know, having a, having a house party and so forth. And then next thing you know, this guy kind of expects you to bring your, uh, burnzomatic torch and, and your, uh, pipe wrench in there and start hammering away on his sink. And I, I started laughing. I said, this, this sounds like a really bad thing. He says, actually, you know, if, if the guy said, do you want to, here's a paintbrush. Do you want to do some painting? I'd be happy. If he said, if he said, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're laying some laminate floor. How about helping out? He says, I'd be thrilled. He said, the one thing I don't want to do when my eight hour day of plumbing is over is more plumbing. And I think sometimes for people in the business or people who play an awful lot, look at, Oh, here's another thing I got to do with fantasy baseball. It, it starts to make it less of a hobby and more of a task. Right. Especially if, you know, I, in, in my own way, I, 
I, I don't shirk on the work. So, you know, I just can't. So, um, it, something's got to give and it, it, it's my own stuff. So, you know, I'm still put 110% into, into the writing, into the projections and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's, it's, it is, you know, like I said, it is, it is what it is and there are ways to go about fixing it. And the other thing, and, and we talked a little about this last week is, I'm not in it to make money in DFS. I'm in it to learn the learn the strategies and the challenge of becoming good at a different format. So that I guess that it, it helps. You know, maybe I should just not play as much because I, you know, again, I'm not I'm not trying to make my living winning hundred thousand dollars at a time. I'm not going to give the money back if it ever happens. But that's not my intent, and that's not my objective. Which is why I'm so you know not going to you know slack on the work because that is my that is my goal my objective is to be you know a very good analyst and writer so uh, uh that that is like to me that's more important than you know being the guy that's featured on the commercials hey you know todd zolo from milford massachusetts turned five dollars into a hundred thousand dollars you know i'd rather be known in the you know fantasy baseball circles as a as a solid analyst you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with solid analyst uh, Todd Zola. <laughs> Todd, you mentioned a moment ago you've been working on your rest of your projections at mastersball.com, and on Twitter you said the projections are finished and have been released. Uh, in general, what are the main drivers of changes in player projections? What I use is a weighted average between what I expected and what the player's doing. And it's not a strict, you know, it's a third of the way through the season, so it's a third what he's done and two-thirds what I expect. We've talked in the past about the stability of certain metrics, strikeout rate and fly ball rate and walk rate and, and those sorts of things. So what I'll do is I will regress what has been done to what is expected using the stabilization data. So we talk about contact rate a lot. Because it's my favorite sort of metric to 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 talk about, because and in, in it stabilizes so quickly. We're at the point of the season where the current contact rate is probably more real than some other stats, and my rest of season projections will reflect that. So um, that's sort of the first step is to uh, do that weighted average, and then run through the you know just like in regular projections, everything's based off of of per plate appearances and. Then the next step is, is coming out with the playing time, which is often uh, tricky, especially this year. I'm finding to be trickier than ever before because there's more fluctuations within batting orders than I've seen in the past, uh, even amongst players that you think are just going to be in this spot and stay there. So you have to be pretty diligent about your, your playing time going forward and then relate that to the team context because the team context changes as well. The same number of home runs and and batting average for, you know, Team X is going to produce a different amount of runs and RBIs, you know, based upon the team context. So I had an individual, I had a expectation coming into the season that I based my numbers on. I have to readjust that as, as to see how that team is doing. Was there an injury? Is the team playing better than I expected? You know, the, and the whatnot, you know, keeping in mind that it is, it is a, a smaller sample. So, doesn't necessarily mean this team is going to continue to struggle or continue to do well, uh, you know, but do have to adjust a player's expectation based in the team context. So uh, as a result of all of this, according to your Twitter uh, 
tweet. I hate saying that word, but <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Like you say, uh, you said on Twitter that you have a new top dog in the hitting department. Uh, tell us who that is and why that projection changed and from whom. The, uh, my new rest of season, uh, ranked hitter is Mr. Paul Goldschmidt of the Arizona Diamondbacks, who narrowly beat out Mike Trout of the, uh, you know, Los Angeles and Angels of Anaheim. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't think it's a shock. Goldschmidt, in theory, is a top three or four player. Some people were a little bit wary coming into the season based upon the, the, the wrist injury after he was hit last year. Uh, sort of tempering expectations, maybe expected the power to manifest later in the season than it, than it seems to have been doing. Uh, but he's, he's doing Paul Goldschmidt type things throughout the whole entire season, including running like he's always done a little bit. And it's not that Trout's not doing what Trout normally does, but this is a perfect example of the team context. In coming into the season, we looked at the, the Diamondbacks, and we didn't think they'd be scoring all that many runs, whereas we thought the Angels would have one of the more potent offenses with Trout and and Pujols, and I'm a big Cole Calhoun fan, uh, so the the number of runs, not to mention that it's the American League versus the National League, we thought the Angels would score more runs. And the reason that they flip-flopped in my rankings, quite frankly, is because Goldschmidt's expected runs and RBIs are now at a point where his overall expectation is better than Mike Trout's when you would factor in his runs and RBIs. So I think it's kind of a, you know, need to keep in mind, you know, is Arizona going to keep this up? Well, I took a look to see why they're doing what they're doing. And A.J. Pollock is, I think he's for real. His Monty Tomas has shown that, you know, he's now a stable part of the lineup and he's going to continue to hit. So I do feel that the, the Diamondbacks are going to stay their, stay their course. I think the Angels may pick it up. And if they do, maybe Trout catches him. But at least for now, uh, if I were to do it in a draft right now and have the number one pick, I'd be taking Paul Goldschmidt. You have Paul Goldschmidt at the top. I checked the BaseballHQ.com projections for a 15-team league in 5x5. Five five. The top player is Paul Goldschmidt. So we, we have an agreement there with Mike Trout second. Just out of curiosity, where do you have uh, Anthony Rizzo? I have Anthony Rizzo in the four spot. Now, one of the keys to Rizzo is he's, he's running. He's stealing a little. And even, you know, even, even five steals is enough to move you up significant amount of spots within a ranking. And you know, is he going to continue to run? I don't know. So if he continues to run, you know, to me he's he's that he's in, he's a top five player. If he doesn't get those five or six or ten more steals, maybe he's now a top ten player. But his his batting out, he's he's hitting against lefties. He's not striking out nearly as much as as he has in the past. And he's still you know he's he's always well, not always, but he displayed the power last year. He's maintaining that. Uh, if you recall, I went, went on, Lar Michaels and I took Anthony Rizzo number seven in January in the FSTA draft. And I, I wish the rest of our team was performing as well as Rizzo is. Uh, you know, that pick seems to be justified. Um, you know, the irony we, we talked about Goldschmidt, uh, our friend Ron, Ron Chandler took Jose Abreu passing over Paul Goldschmidt, um, because of the injury concerns. And, uh, you know, Abreu is doing fine as well, but it just, it goes to show the different, you know, the subtle, the subtle little things that go into a player analysis that, you know, you know, we talked about the spreadsheet before, you know, the spreadsheet doesn't 
think about Paul Goldschmidt's injury and 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 will one team improve over the course of the season in terms of runs scored? Uh, these are the things you sort of have to do on your own, and and as they say, it's why we play the game. Indeed. Uh, how about on the pitching side? Is Clayton Kershaw still at the top despite a shaky opening uh, part of the season? HQ has a has a really really good playing time projection. Uh, staff. I'm, I am my staff, so I, I'm a little bit behind. I do an every other week sort of thing. Uh, so I'll, I'll be coming out with the updated pitching, uh, later over the weekend. And when I, back when I did this, we, Kershaw was one, Felix was two, Scherzer was three, and Chris Sale was four. It's pretty much chalk. Uh, pitching in general, uh, seems to be going pretty chalk this year, other than our, other than, you know, Steven Strasburg and, and players, players of that ilk. I, um, I actually had Matt Harvey at 19th, and this is on May 30th, because I don't want to, one of the things I mentioned was what spreadsheets are really good at is not incorporating recency bias. And I think that's a, I think Matt Harvey is a perfect example. Um, you know, there's, you know, the, there's no other player in baseball that has their own Twitter hashtag named after him, but every Harvey pitches, it's Matt Harvey day. So I, I, you know, the spreadsheet has Matt Harvey. A little bit lower than I think people in their head. And a lot of that might have to do with the innings as well in that. And again, a spreadsheet can, tr- you put a fewer amount of innings in there and it's going to do the adjustment. It does in the head. Sometimes you just think of the RBI, uh, the RBI, the ERA and the whip and, and rank him amongst like ERAs and whips. But if he doesn't have as many innings, then it's not going to be as important. But even my expected ERA at the time was 3.07. So the spreadsheet's not only capturing fewer innings, it's it doesn't have the recency bias and is incorporating some of the the current skill level and it's altering his expectation in uh, in your hitting projections that you've just released Todd did you see any other real big sort of magnitude order moves well i mentioned hj pollock uh, i've got him number 23 overall i think that's a pretty pretty substantial jump and i think it's even safer now with with the with the trade of Mark Trumbo to Seattle than that there's no possibility even of of using NCRD in center and, and trying to get Peralta in there a little bit more. I mean they're gonna rest Pollock, but he may you know, maybe there's three or four or five or six more games that he may not have may have set out for that he's gonna play now. So I think you know, and, and he's he's showing again, he's he's the absolute real he 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 kept me from getting uh, another couple hour or another hour of beauty sleep last night by hitting that late home run, uh, forcing me to stay up a little bit longer to uh, to sweat the DFS that I was playing. But that's, I actually had a good night for a change. Um, but let's see, some other name. Mike, we talked about, well, Michael Brantley was another hot button player that jumped into the top 10 last year. We expected some, some regression, and, and we have seen the regression in power. But man, the batting average is even better. So he's, he's still a top 10 player. Bryce Harper is, you know, it just shows his increased power is now starting to play. It's being captured by the, uh, captured by the system. And he's now up to my number eight hitter, uh, inter- interestingly enough. And, uh, everybody, we'll take a quick look. There's, uh, anybody you would expect? Well, Chris Bryant's interesting because, you know, a lot of that's based upon the MLE, and how do we know where the MLE, how accurate that is? But we're getting to the point where some of his in-season metrics can be considered real, and he's coming out as a top twenty player, which 
Is that because of a, of an, of a overblown MLE? Well, at this point, it's incorporating a lot of what he's doing. So I think, uh, it's, if Chris Bryant's a top 20 player now, I can't imagine where he's going to be going in drafts next year. It'll be interesting, that's for sure. Uh, Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, uh, another one of your Twitter mentions was about Pat Vendity. And before anybody out there gets all excited about mispronouncing the name, I checked on BaseballReference.com and at the Creighton University Athletic Department website where Pat Vendity pitched, and they had a pronunciation guide. So I'm going with them and not you if you think it's Vendite or whatever else you might think it is. According to these two sources, it's Vendity, and that's what I'm going with. He's been a great story so far. Obviously, switch pitching always catches everybody's attention. Uh, It's not often you see an amphibious pitcher... (laughs) was uh, in a headline somewhere making the rounds on Facebook and so forth. But uh, something that you said on Twitter really got me thinking, this must play havoc with a guy like you who's trying to project a pitcher based on handedness. Right, I, I said it tongue-in-cheek because uh, at least to this extent, at least in, in DFS anyway, relievers aren't part of the equation. They, there used to be sites that would incorporate closing but at this point, they're gone. So it was more, you know, I, I said on Twitter, we need a sarcastic font and we need a rhetorical font so people know your intent a little bit more. So it was meant more as a joke. But I think, I mean, you can, you know, read into it a little bit more. And, you know, let's say he establishes himself this year. It, I think, it, you know, his projection next year, it will be interesting. Is he going to be able to throw... 80 innings when most relievers throw 50 to 65, that sort of thing. I, so whether or not it's going to play havoc with my engine as far, you know, that the, the joke there, you know, I, you, I just uh, hitters based upon the pitchers they face and the handedness and, and that sort of thing. So if he was a starter, it may be, a, may be more of an issue. But thinking about his projection in general, especially if he gets to the point where he would be useful for mixed leagues and definitely AL-only leagues, it it will be an interesting projection to consider, you know, where you know, based on his usage this year, you know, where where, where are you going to put him? Because an extra twenty or twenty five innings for a reliever is huge. I was just wondering that exact thing. Can he pitch more because he's sharing the load, for want of a better term? Now I know that there's a lot of. Uh, pitching that actually has more to do with uh, your leg drive and your lower body, and that's going to be relatively equal both ways. But again, maybe it's different stresses and strains when you're going from one side to the other, and maybe that is somewhat lessened by the fact that sometimes he's throwing right-handed and sometimes he's throwing left-handed. And I wonder at some point if his agent, when he goes in to negotiate, can make the point that A, he's going to be able to pitch more innings and be effective. And B, what happens if one of his arms gets, you know, some kind of elbow strain? He can still pitch, at least, can't he? Yeah, well, that was the other sort of tongue-in-cheek tweet was if he needs TJS, can he throw with the other arm? So some people favored it, you know, got the chuckle. But I actually got some serious responses from some medical people, which I thought were kind of cool as far as, well, don't forget that they need to take the ligament from the thigh or the other wrist, so there's some rehab going on there. And, and you know, there you, you still do need to be able to catch the ball and defend yourself and if you can't move your arm, etc. So, I mean, I, I, I knew that, but I mean, I was looking more for the joke. But, you know, if he is a little, you know, sore, if, if it's not, you know, if it's not a, you know, an, a, a, a TJS or a shoulder sort of thing, if there's just some mild soreness, he probably could go with the other arm. And I think the other factor he's talking about, 
useful agents and, and salary and, and, and all that sort of thing is he extends your bullpen in that if you're, say, you're using him in the seventh inning and you don't have to bring in your, your left-handed specialist to, to face, you know, a, a good, you know, David Ortiz or, or, or a good left-handed hitter in the American League or an inter, you know, inter-squad game or inter-league game in the National League, you don't have to face, you know, Kyle Seeger. You don't have to bring in your left-handed reliever. You can have Vendetti switch, uh, Vendetti switch and save your Lugie for the eighth inning, you know, later on in the game. And it doesn't, that doesn't get captured in the statistics, but it certainly makes the team better. And, you know, and a good, a good agent will talk about that. And, you know, even thinking about projections too, that might have sort of a, a piggyback effect on some of the other relievers on that particular team. If they're being able to be put into better situations, maybe a, a guy that gets killed by left-handers may have to face fewer of them, and his numbers overall may be a little, I'm thinking, uh, uh, a guy, uh, mental block, the Cleveland, the Cleveland pitcher that was supposed to be the closer, but never, uh, didn't materialize was just so good against righties, but got hurt by lefties. Maybe he wouldn't have to face as many lefties and his overall numbers wouldn't have been a little bit better, uh, with Vendetti on your team. So there's you know, that consideration as well. The thing about this whole story is, and, and something I, I don't get about wh- how it's being reported, he's 30 years old, and this is basically his first kick at the can. If he was really effective against both right-handed and left-handed hitters, wouldn't he have been in the big leagues by now? I, he's off to a good start. He's got just short of six innings, so very small sample, but he hasn't allowed a run. He's only a 0.5 whip, roughly. So he's having a good year, and if it lasted for 65 or 70 or 90 innings or whatever this ambidextrous advantage creates for him, he'd be a sensational relief pitcher. But the fact is, if he's that good, why is it taking him so long to get to the big leagues? Right, and you can ask that question in general, but uh, no, that's 100% correct. And, and as, as you know, as Doug Dennis will, will let us know and continues to let us know, weird things happen, relievers in short samples. It's such a volatile uh profession and you know six six good innings leading off a career means nothing uh you know i think at this point it's the narrative it's the story and if it continues on throughout the course of the season it then becomes more of a uh, a real hardcore you know projection issue you know right now it's it's more fun to watch the video where where he and blake swihart you know play you know this side this side which side you're gonna throw you know which which side am i hitting from sort of thing and, and more you know that sort of or taking a look at the at the glove and and, and etc then then it becomes a real you know hardcore issue that that we have to think about going into next season as far as fantasy and here's something that I don't think it really bears on fantasy too much, but I'm just wondering if you know because I haven't heard anybody mention it. What happens if he's standing up there on the mound and he's facing a switch hitter? No, I looked it up, and it, it, it's very clear, and they call it the Vendetti rule. He has to declare which arm he's going to throw with, and he can either step off the rubber and indicate which arm he's going to throw with, or when he's on the rubber, whichever way he's facing is is that's it it's like taking your finger off the chest piece so to right. speak so more often than not and the thing with blake swihart what well, the, the, the 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 thing there was he faced him in the minor leagues and he, he forgot which way he wanted to face him and he told him the wrong way and then he corrected it so swihart started ahead to the one way to the plate then had to head back to the other but you know he he was off the rubber so he was able to declare which arm to you know 
for the umpire and therefore Swihart can then, you know, go in one way or the other. But it's the pitcher's onus to declare and you have to stay that way the entire at bat. Okay. So, you know, you have, it had to be one way or the other. They had to decide, is it going to be the hitter or is it going to be the pitcher that gets the advantage? And, you know, whoever decided the rule must have been a hitter because that's the way they went. Well, it's in the spirit of the rule where they, they bring the relief pitcher in and the, uh, and the offensive team then pinch hits for that guy. The, the rule says that he has to stay in and pitch to a guy and accept the disadvantage on the handedness issue. Yeah, yep. And I, you know, I guess if I was making the rule up, I would have, uh, gone the same way it seems to make sense otherwise it would just be a complete you know an utter you know just just mess you know as far as which way which way you want to go but i can i can see in certain situations where if there's runners on base and and where you want to position your fielders against a switch hitter why you might want to go one way versus the other and not just knowing which is the, the switch hitters stronger or weaker side and it may also depend upon the on the uh on the uh on the venue because some venues favor one side over another aggressive field is a much better power park for lefties than it is for righties and there's a couple switch hitters on uh on the indians so i can see where you know carlos santana being you know front and center so i can see where the choice might come down to the park when he faces a guy like carlos santana yeah, and that that provides his manager with a small tactical advantage also because at least you can force Santana to hit the way you want him to rather than uh, using a pitcher out of the bullpen just to turn him around and then they pinch hit and so forth and get into that dance. So it does allow you that small tactical advantage. Uh, Pat Venditti is going to be an interesting guy to watch for the balance of the year, but uh, just looking at his career record, looking at what he's done even in a small sample this year, I don't think this guy's in any danger of becoming the next uh, American. Mariano Rivera, left hand, right hand, or other both hands. Yeah, that, that that was another tweet I sent out after after updating my save projections uh, a couple weeks ago. It just you know not that I didn't already have ultimate respect for Mariano Rivera, but maybe we can talk about it down the line. But closes this year are just more volatile than they've ever been, and it just just makes you shake your head and realize just what a, a fantastic job that guy did for so many years. Yeah, him and a, and a select handful of others that I, I'm in the school, Todd, especially as far as fantasy baseball is concerned, that closers are generally overrated. There's too much volatility in it. But if you if you can identify the ones who are guaranteed to deliver, then you've really got something. And Mariano Rivera was that. I mean, even this year, there are some uh, – we went in thinking the top three were uh, Araldus Chapman, uh, Greg Holland – and uh, Kimbrell, who got traded into Craig Senate. Kimbrell, yeah. And so far, Kimbrell's been okay. He's been what people expected. Chapman has been way short of expectations, and Holland has struggled. Right, and Kimbrell's ERA and ratios, well, his ERA anyway, isn't the microscopic number that we usually expect. You know, even if, if you were looking at that middle tier, oh, I, I love guys like Melanson and Cody Allen and, and Steve Sishik, well, if you guessed Melanson, you went through a scare, but you're doing okay. But if you took Sishik or Allen, well, Allen's back, but he's still there's still some some questions there. You know, you know, if you if you went if you took the chance on Trevor Rosenthal, you're a genius. So sometimes it's, you, you can have a strategy. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my ace closer, and if you pick the right one, you your strategy worked. If you pick the wrong one, you change the. You know, this is what we're talking about because I'm gonna be writing about this. And how I don't want a knee-jerk reaction based upon this particular season, because I think it's been a real odd one as far as as closers go, uh, especially that that middle air quote safe tier 
above the uh, elite, below the elite, but above the the more volatile guys. I think it's uh, you know, you want to live in that tier. It's 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 been been some issues this year. I'm I'm looking particularly at Chapman, a 135 whip. Uh, boy, oh boy, I, I don't imagine there's hardly anybody who took a roll to Chapman thinking, I oh, you know, 135 whip would do nicely. Right, and off the top of my head. I mean, Jansen's, uh, sorry, Kimbrell's ERA was high. Now that, you know, with, you know, short sample, his whip is where you expect it to be. And ERA is a bit out of your control, but you didn't go into the year thinking that that's where it was going to be. Um, but you know, then you, but you've got guys, you know, Kenley Jansen and, and, uh, Koji O'Hara who still are keeping that number really, really low. Actually, the, right now, the person that, took the chance on Kenley Jansen getting healthy is the happiest of the bunch because they got him at a discount and he's almost caught up in terms of saves with some of these other guys. Also got to like uh, Glenn Perkins having a good year, uh, partly because Minnesota is outplaying what everybody expected. Right. And then the flip side, if you, uh, if you correctly identified Brett Cecil as being the Blue Jays closer, you haven't had an opportunity for a save. And I think like, almost a month <laughs> and it's just it, it's just wacky uh you know opportunities they're you know they're 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 somewhat random and not always related to how well the team is doing and it's just it's just goofy so uh, you know brett cecil pitching well but i guess two saves on the air and there are some backup closers that have gotten two vulture saves so it's just sometimes it's not you know why you pick them it's who you pick you made your process was fine and it just the the end result wasn't as you expected for no fault of your own. I think uh, Miguel Castro, the guy that took Cecil's place right at the start of the year, still has more saves, even though he's sitting in the minor leagues. He very well could, and uh, and it, it's, it's it's it's. I mean, Toronto's winning games. They're, they're not completely, you know, not winning games. But when they're winning, they're destroying their opponents, and when they're when they're losing, they're it's not close enough. They're it, it just. They're not affording their team a lot of chances. It's uh, it's just part of it, you know. And there are people out there that want to get rid of the save as a category, and I can see it. I don't want. I don't want to have hold in its place. I I can see it, but I think still I don't want to make a knee jerk reaction to one third of a seasons of of odd of oddities. So uh, you know, it's it's it is going to be interesting to follow and. And will be a category that's going to decide a lot of leagues come uh, come October. Yeah, it almost always is that and wins, which is uh, a subject for another day, but also very uh, problematic as far as uh, uh, an accurate category to use. But it injects a lot of fun and uncertainty into the game, and uh, that's why we play the game is because we're trying to manage the uncertainties, not create a system where we can project the outcome on day one and all go about our business. Right. If you want to do that, there's plenty of simulation games out there, and and I play those too, which uh, adds on to my my work burden. But uh, you know, th- those are out there if you want to uh, if you want to do that, and they're pretty fun as well. All right, Todd, thanks very much for doing this. Good luck in the uh, Tau Ors daily game tonight, and um, I'll catch up with you again next week. Uh, looking forward to it. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, for Ron Chandler's uh, ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, Masters Ball, Fantasy Alarm, and as I say every week, wherever Todd Zola's writing, you ought to be reading. When we come back, we'll have our Baseball HQ commentaries. It's the pitcher matchups and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the Take me out with the crowd.
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we'll have Ray Murphy in Master Notes. And right now, it's our Pitcher Matchups Report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with a matchup rating of plus 2 and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below 0. Everything between 0 and 2 is a cost-benefit analysis. Here with some weekend matchups, including Milwaukee right-hander Jimmy Nelson hosting Washington righty Jordan Zimmerman, Atlanta righty Mike Fultonevich visiting Mets righty Noah Syndergaard, and more matchups, is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. After this weekend, only two teams will have more than 100 games remaining in their regular seasons. Some teams have already begun bringing up their best prospects, so let's use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool to identify some young guns for you to bring up too. In the National League on Saturday, 26-year-old Milwaukee right-hander Jimmy Nelson puts his matchup rating of 144 up against Washington right-hander Jordan Zimmerman and his matchup rating of 186 in Milwaukee's hitter-friendly Miller Park. Of course, Zimmerman is an established starter. His rookie season was in 2009. He's earned double-digit roto values for his owners since 2011. But he's below that mark so far this season. His whip of 130 is his highest since 2010. His expected earned run average of 420 is his highest ever, and his dominance rate of 59 is his lowest ever. He's lost only one mile per hour of velocity, and he has eight PQS dominant outings with only one PQS disaster. So maybe it's just the luck of the left-handed batter's 38% hit rate going against him. But I'm a little worried about Zimmerman. The biggest worry I have about Nelson is that he pitches for the Brewers who have the worst home record, the second worst overall record, and scored the third fewest runs in Major League Baseball. Nelson has trimmed nearly a run off of his 2014 rookie year earned run average of 493. He's lowered his whip from 146 to 121 and raised his dominance rate from 7-4 to 8-2. He's not likely to log a win, but he is pitching well enough to show why we say don't chase wins. In the American League on Saturday, 26-year-old former top prospect Mike Montgomery makes his third Major League start for Seattle, bringing his matchup rating of minus 121 into Houston, where he'll face Colin McHugh and his matchup rating of 089. Montgomery is throwing 91 miles per hour and has posted a PQS 4 and a PQS 5 in his first two starts. His extremely small sample size of 13 big league innings pitched has yielded 7 strikeouts, 4 walks, and the negative matchup rating. But that's also due to Seattle's 29th ranking in run production and Houston's 7th best home record and 6th best record versus teams under 500 like the M's. It's just too soon to follow Montgomery into battle. Back in the National League on Sunday, who will emerge as top gun when the New York Mets 22-year-old Noah Syndergaard hosts the Atlanta Braves 23-year-old Mike Fultonevich at City Field? Syndergaard has the highest matchup rating at 197, and Fultonevich has only 136. In six major league starts, Syndergaard has three PQS dominant scores with only one PQS disaster. In eight major league starts, Fultonevich has done the same, three PQS dominant scores and one PQS disaster. 
In their past two starts, however, Syndergaard has allowed 11 earned runs on 20 hits in 10 innings, and Fultonevich has allowed 9 earned runs on 20 hits in 11 innings. But Syndergaard has a much better expected ERA at 3.32 to 4.27, and a much higher base performance value at 142 to 83. So in this set of small sample sizes, give the edge to Syndergaard. On top of that, the Mets have the third best home record, and the Braves are 17th on the road. The Mets are 25 and 12 versus teams under 500, and the Braves are 10 and 17 versus teams at or above 500. So soar with Syndergaard in this one. And in the American League on Sunday, 22-year-old Boston left-handed rookie sensation Eduardo Rodriguez, already nicknamed Erod, gets a matchup rating of 150 at home against Toronto's Marco Estrada. Erod has started his major league career with a dazzling three straight perfect PQS 5 scores. He's gone at least six innings, struck out at least seven, and thrown at least 102 pitches in each effort. Of course, it's too small of a sample size to put much faith into his hit rate of 16% and strand rate of 100%, but it must be fun to be the first in your league to own Erod, so ride the wave. To get the jump on your league mates, jump on Jimmy Nelson, Noah Syndergaard, and Eduardo Rodriguez this weekend, but watch Mike Montgomery and Mike Fultonevich from afar. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball, with a look at stay patient, can know. Here's BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy. A couple of weeks back, during an appearance on SiriusXM Fantasy Sports, Kyle Elfrink was asking me how much I believed in various hot and cold starting players. In offering my opinions on a half dozen or so players, I reserved my clearest endorsement of any slow starter for Robinson Cano. These radio spots don't allow for more than surface analysis, but I felt particularly good about my position on Cano. He's an elite player with a lengthy track record. There's no evidence of a hidden injury. And in fact, he has had a couple of examples in his recent past, both last year in Seattle plus 2012 in New York, where he has also started slowly but then rebounded nicely. We're very leery of tagging players as habitual fast starters or slow starters, but Cano might just be a slow starter. Like I said, I felt pretty darn good about my Cano argument. And of course... In the three weeks since that radio spot, Cano has gone out and hit 200 on the button. And now it's mid-June. A few more weeks of poor performance accumulated for Cano and his owners. Almost as bad as the poor performance is the missed opportunity. It seems early to be talking about how much season we have remaining, but these past few weeks represented a measurable chunk of the season that Cano had available to him to dig out of this no longer early hole. Cano has yet to even master the first rule of being in a hole. He hasn't stopped digging. In the language of air travel, he's using up his runway. In taking another look at Cano's skills this week, I still see a lot of reason for optimism. His contact rate is down noticeably from his traditional near 90% level down to the mid-low 80s right now. But that number seems more like an effect than a cause. He started at 85% in April, then 82% in May, now just 75% so far in June. It's sometimes too easy to attach narrative to data, but that looks to me like a player who is recently changing his approach and pressing at the plate. In short, 
He's frustrated. When he does make contact, there's nothing wrong. His ground ball, line drive, fly ball distribution is right in line with historical levels. And his hard hit ball percentage is actually up significantly from last year. In fact, it's back in the neighborhood of what he posted in his much more productive 2012-2013 years. Largely due to those above factors, our expected power index metric, XPX, shows a large gap between expected and actual power for Cano. In short, he should have more than the two home runs he does so far. But at some point, what should happen stops mattering. XPX probably isn't a category in your league. We know that players don't perform linearly month over month. Performance ebbs and flows. Cano is no exception. Back in 2012, he started the year with a 267 batting average and one home run in April. Then he went nuts in May and June, hitting over 320 with 18 home runs in just those two months. By the All-Star break, nobody was complaining about or could even remember that slow start. Still, that kind of spectacular pivot isn't likely here in 2015. At Baseball HQ, we're always looking for the 80% play. And here, the 80% play is that Cano's performance rebounds back toward his historical levels. That 2012 scenario, while not impossible, is the 20% outcome. So what is a Cano owner to do? Simply put, there are no good options here. And faced with only bad options, sometimes their decision-making criteria changes. If you can free yourself from hoping for that 20% outcome, embracing that 80% outcome might open some doors for you. It would have been better to try and sell low on Cano's slow start a month ago, where his reputation and track record would have carried more weight on the trade market. But it may not be too late now, if you set your expectations accordingly. Find another weak spot on your roster and go shopping for a reasonable fix for that hole. Don't overreach. If you can find the right target, both in terms of the player you're seeking and the other owner's risk tolerance, maybe you can strike a deal. Is that the best move? The answer to that question may well be another question. How angry are you at Robinson Cano? Consider this little thought exercise. Let's start with the premise that you are, in fact, angry at Cano for not living up to your expectations. If you keep him and he does not have that massive rebound, you will remain angry at him all season. If you trade him and he does have that massive rebound, you will remain angry at him all season. But if you trade him and he continues to disappoint and you can get something worthwhile in the transaction, that may be the only path available that reduces your anger. If you can find that deal that is good for your team, even while eating your sunk costs in Cano or Pablo Sandoval or any of the other big disappointments of the first half, there's another important metric that might see a positive impact your blood pressure. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 33 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. 
I also want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of our show. It was Todd Zola. Always enjoy our weekly talk with Todd, and I hope you like it as much as I do. Also, I want to thank our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Alex Becky. Our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager, Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a Baseball HQ research piece looking at the predictive power of hot pitching streaks. And of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and be among the first to know when a new show is ready for download. Also, don't forget that new email address, bhqradio at gmail.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday when our expert guest will be Yahoo Sports and Wall Street Journal fantasy analyst Michael Salfino. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.